they said, you're just enabling. You're just enabling addicts to use by giving them a, a clean needle. And the answer is they're going to use with a clean needle. They're going to use with a dirty needle. This is Linda Rosenthal. She's a New York State Assemblywoman representing the 67th District in Manhattan, which covers the Upper West Side and parts of Hell's Kitchen. Their addiction compels them to find drugs in any way possible, even stealing from their parents, trading in family heirlooms because the, the need to use is so great. So we're not enabling them. We're just helping them do it in a more healthful manner. Welcome back to In Sickness and in Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm your host, Dr. Celine Gounder. In this season, we're tackling the opioid overdose crisis, looking at elements that often aren't covered in the news, and following each thread of the story to understand the causes, the impact, and the challenges of this crisis. In today's episode, we're going to look at what some think is a radical solution to the opioid overdose epidemic supervised consumption sites. The idea is to create a place where users can bring in their own drugs and inject under the supervision of medical staff. The goal is to reduce the health risks of using drugs, to prevent overdoses, and to take drug use out of public places, like playgrounds or McDonald's restrooms. Although this idea might sound drastic to American ears, these facilities are nothing new. There are nearly 100 supervised consumption sites in 10 countries around the world, including Canada, Australia, Switzerland, Germany, and Spain. And in this country, Seattle and Philadelphia recently announced their plans to open supervised consumption sites of their own. But the idea has been controversial. Isn't the goal to help get people off drugs? Can giving users a place to inject their drugs safely help cure them of addiction? And how exactly do these facilities work? So um, the Insight project in Vancouver took a lot of years to open. It was in response to a very significant number of people who were dying every year from injection opiate use. And at that time in the early 90s in Vancouver, when I sort of came onto the scene there, there was really only two ways of looking at that problem. There was that people either deserved to die because they were addicted or that they should just get treatment. And it wasn't like there was anything in between. So for all the people that were active users in the community, there was an escalating rate of HIV in fact, we had the highest rate of conversion to HIV in the Western world. This is Liz Evans. She's the co-founder and former director of the Portland Hotel Society in Vancouver, a group that brought support services into single-room occupancy hotels, catering to homeless people, giving them a safe place to stay, whether or not they were still using drugs. There was really very few resources for people that were active drug users, because of this belief that there's only really two ways of dealing with the problem. You either have to get people clean, or they die, or get locked up. And that was sort of the mentality at the time. In the early 90s, the conversation about drugs and addiction was dominated by the rhetoric of the war on drugs. For many, drug policy was about shutting down all drug use. 
Abstinence was the end-all, be-all. And the notion of giving people a safe place to use drugs didn't make sense to people at all. Wasn't that defeating the purpose? Back in 1991, the Vancouver neighborhood where Liz worked had a population of 16,000 people, 6,000 of whom were injection drug users. Imagine that, over a third. People were dying from overdoses, from HIV, from other infections. Something had to be done. In 2003, Vancouver decided to take a bold step. Together with colleagues at the Portland Hotel Society, Liz started Insight. It was the first supervised consumption site in North America. The supervised injection site, conceptually, they've been around for a long time. Um, they started, the first one started in the 60s and the 70s in England. They were just places where people who were active drug users could use their drugs without being penalized effectively. And they've used, many terms have been used to apply to them over the years. Um, supervised consumption sites, drug consumption rooms, fixing rooms, safe medically supervised injection sites, uh, and safe and supervised injection facilities. Supervised consumption sites give drug users a clean, safe space to use their drugs without fear of trouble with the law. They're given sterile equipment. If someone overdoses, nurses are there at the ready with naloxone to revive them. The idea was to put people first, keeping people alive first. No one's ever died because that's the purpose of its existence, is to make sure people don't die and to connect them to services. So they get connected from there into treatment programs, housing, detox, and their lives become increasingly stable as a result of having an access point where people can come to get help. So Insight does a lot more than give users a safe place to use. It also provides important medical care, testing for HIV and hepatitis, care for wounds, which are all too common among injection drug users living on the street, drug detox and treatment, mental health care, and social services are there to help them with things like food and shelter. The group that come into supervised injection sites tend to be people who feel as though their lives have been given up on and that no one cares about them, that no one gives a shit whether they live or die. These are the most marginalized drug users. Many are homeless. Often, these people have lost their communities, or their communities have abandoned them. Their relationships are strained, and they may have become very isolated in their lives. For Liz, the relationships piece, that's what turns lives around. When a person feels that their life is utterly worthless and that they're worthless, it's amazing how the slightest thing can make a massive amount of difference, and having people respect you and treat you well can really make a tremendous amount of difference in how people then start to feel about the, their own health care, their own um, value. So it makes people go from feeling like, why should they even care if they're HIV positive or not, to caring enough to possibly get a test, or not caring enough to ever even contemplate what their life might be like without using injection drugs, to starting to ask about what it's like to go into a detox program. Liz believes Supervised consumption sites keep people alive and help them stabilize. Then it becomes a lot easier for them to get help for their addiction down the line. And when users are ready, they can get connected to an on-site detox and to drug treatment services. So when I think about supervised injection, I don't think of it as outside of treatment. 
I sort of see it as treatment. It's the first step into treatment because we know from the site that I was involved in starting in Vancouver that people are twice as likely to get into treatment just because they've walked into the door of that supervised injection site. The stats on Insight are impressive. Within two years after Insight opened, the rate of deaths from drug overdose in the neighborhood dropped by 35%. Between 2003 and 2011, nearly 3,000 lives were saved from overdose. And Insight hasn't just been good for drug users, it's been good for the community, the city. Vehicle break-ins and thefts actually went down. There were fewer drug users injecting in public, meaning fewer needles and syringes littering the neighborhood. Users were also a lot less likely to share needles and syringes, and so less likely to transmit bloodborne diseases. And that's been saving the city $6 million on HIV-related costs each year alone. But despite the evidence, keeping a facility like Insight going wasn't easy. Although the Canadian government was initially supportive of Insight, the mood changed when conservative Stephen Harper became prime minister. With Harper in charge, the administration rescinded the legal exemption that allowed Insight to operate. And the words harm reduction were taken out of national drug strategy. In the context of the federal government at the time, who were very conservative and very opposed to the concept of supervised injection ideologically, in order to stay open, we had to go before the courts. Insight took the case all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. In 2011, the verdict was in. The court ruled unanimously in favor of Insight. Today, Liz Evans is the executive director of the Washington Heights Corner Project and New York Harm Reduction in Education in New York City. She's bearing witness to another opioid overdose epidemic, one driven by illicit fentanyl use, and doing what she can to spread the word about the Insight model and other harm reduction approaches. In the United States, there are currently no legally sanctioned supervised consumption sites, but the idea is gaining traction. In 2016, Seattle, like the rest of the country, was seeing a spike in overdoses. Deaths from drug overdose tripled in King County between 2009 and 2014, hitting an all-time high in 2016. 2017 numbers haven't been tallied yet, but will likely be even higher. On average, someone dies from an overdose in King County every 36 hours. County plans to establish two small pilot sites that already cater to homeless people who use drugs. But even then, the logistics and politics of where to put them is complicated, especially when supervised consumption sites remain a hard sell for some. Uh, my name is uh, Senator Mark Malosha from Federal Way, the 30th District in Washington State. Before running for office, Mark did a lot of other things. Mark has been involved with local faith-based efforts to help the homeless since the 1990s. He studied clinical psychology and got an MBA. He was in the Air Force. He worked for the Goodwill. Mark's district, Federal Way, is a suburban bedroom community between Seattle and Tacoma. We're a spillover community from Seattle. Uh, I like to tell people when Seattle sneezes, the rest of us get sick. 
Mark says his district is feeling the effects of Seattle's rising housing prices. Right now, I think we hit 12 months in a row, Seattle housing prices have gone up highest in the nation. Uh, now, if, if not just lower class or uh, newly entry into the workforce or somebody with a family, you virtually can't afford to live in Seattle anymore. And the spillover down into the suburbs has been tremendous. We have seen a rise in homelessness the last few years. Mark, like many others, sees a link between homelessness and drug use. I've had a number of bills this last year trying to address that, you know, you know link long-term heroin addiction and homelessness. But Mark thinks that we already have systems for dealing with these problems. We just haven't invested enough in them, in making them work. So the whole system of drug courts, drug diversion programs, of getting people stopped trespassing and living under the bridges and, and the viaducts, getting them into housing um, has completely fallen apart. So that's why we had this real rise of what is called the jungles in Seattle, where you virtually have these massive encampments, almost like third world shanty towns, living you know, in the shadow of these fantastic new skyscrapers we have. And just because we stopped arresting people for poor behavior. And meanwhile, we're all distracted going to this new shiny little you know, diamond that everybody thinks is going to solve everything, the safe consumption site. In 2017, and again in 2018, Mark introduced bills to ban supervised consumption sites in Washington state. And he's been a vocal proponent of Ballot Initiative 27 to ban public funding for such facilities. When Mark talks to his constituents, he hears worries that supervised consumption sites would lead to more drug use and crime. Well, it'll bring needles and drug dealers I hear that. They all said this is going to make things worse. This is going to enable and increase drug use. It is not going to help people. It's pretend fix. Mark even sees these facilities as one step away from legalizing heroin. Basically, it's the movement toward legalization, decriminalization of drugs, and the movement toward, and this is even more crucial, is that we're going to move toward the goal of drug treatment is not abstinence, or i.e. get off the drug, a cure, you know, the goal is to stay on, on the drug as long as you desire. The patient gets to decide that. Last fall, a King County Superior Court judge ruled that voters couldn't override the power of the County Board of Health to respond to public health crises, throwing out ballot initiative 27 and allowing King County to proceed with its plans to open supervised consumption sites. But supporters of Ballot Initiative 27 are appealing the case to the Washington State Supreme Court. And the battle likely won't end there. In 2017, Mark wrote a letter to Attorney General Jeff Sessions. He called on the U.S. Department of Justice to intervene and block the sites. Jeff Sessions didn't respond to Mark Melosha directly but the Department of Justice issued a statement concerning proposed supervised consumption sites in another state, Vermont. The Department of Justice wrote, It is a crime not only to use illicit narcotics, but to manage and maintain sites on which such drugs are used and distributed. In other words, Jeff Sessions opposes the establishment of supervised consumption sites and would subject them to federal forfeiture. No supervised consumption sites have opened yet in this country, so it still remains unclear how this will play out. But Mark doesn't see any problem with the old model. Why don't we try to go back to the model we knew that used to work, the criminal justice, drug courts, diversion model, 
community pressure, strong families, um, early intervention strategies, go after uh, drug dealing. Why don't we go back to what worked? While many see Just Say No as a failed relic of the past, Mark believes that shaming addicts is useful and that drug users should be shamed until they clean up their act and get into treatment. Stigma, shame, guilt are emotions that are extremely useful in dealing with behavior. But there's this movement to say, let's get rid of all stigmatization or guilt or shame or not say anything judgmental about actually a a very negative self-destruct behavior, I believe is absolutely crazy. But not everyone sees it that way. Patricia Sully sees things very differently. The problem, Patricia says, isn't that we need more stigma and shame. It's that we need less of it. Most people respond better to positive reinforcement. When people feel like their life has meaning and their life has worth, they're more able to treat their life like it has meaning and treat their life like it has worth. People who are living outside and people who are experiencing this just daily trauma of surviving experience a tremendous amount of stigma and shame every single day. Patricia is a staff attorney for the Public Defender Association, and she coordinates Vocal Washington, an organization that advocates for safe consumption sites in Seattle and King County. And like Liz Evans, the co-founder of Insight in Vancouver, Patricia emphasizes the relationship piece, the trust, the feeling there's someone who cares. This is a place where, you know, people can come in where they are. They can be loved and accepted and trust that this is going to be an environment where they're not going to encounter stigma and judgment. They can develop those relationships with healthcare professionals, which are really important. These are really tailored to serve the population that's using drugs outdoors. We have a lot of people in Seattle who live in very isolated environments where they're living in an encampment, and they may not be in a relationship with any any service provider. They may have no trusted relationship with any kind of healthcare worker. So when they do have that moment, it's often in isolation where there's no place to go with it. So in a supervised consumption space or a chell where someone is, you know, coming in where they are, when they do have that moment, they're able to be connected immediately to to care. And what Patricia means here is that when someone has a moment, when they need help, whether that's just someone to listen to them or medical care, mental health care, detox services, there's someone in their life they can reach out to, a place where they can go. And like Liz Evans, Patricia thinks there's something in it for the law and order crowd. Supervised consumption sites are a way of sweeping up outdoor drug use, public drug use. It's one thing we do hear from neighbors and residents is that people are concerned about outdoor drug use and they are concerned about the number of syringes on the streets and they don't they don't want those things happening in their alley or in the bathroom. And supervised consumption spaces are a way to to help address those community concerns and move that activity out of bathrooms, out of parks, and into, you know, a more appropriate location. The way Patricia sees it, supervised consumption sites are a win-win for drug users, for communities, for public health officials, for law enforcement. At the end of the day, supervised consumption spaces make sense. Right now, people are using drugs. They're using drugs outside. They're using drugs in bathrooms. They're using drugs in parks. When people are afraid, afraid of the consequences of that drug use, that they might encounter a law enforcement officer, they might be arrested, 
or they might just be seen by the general public and they're embarrassed and ashamed and don't want their behavior on display. They rush. That leads to problems. They're in dirty locations. That leads to problems. And they're at risk for a fatal overdose, which, of course, is tragic. It's the end of the story. Someone who dies never gets the chance to recover. A lot of other cities across the U.S. are considering supervised consumption sites of their own. New York, Ithaca, Baltimore, San Francisco, Denver, a dozen or so cities across the country are exploring the possibility. Linda Rosenthal, who we heard from at the beginning of this episode, is on the front lines of the debate in New York City. The way Linda sees it, many people don't understand how relentless addiction can be. People who are gripped by addiction have to use in order to feel okay. You know, they don't get up and say, I'm going to go get high today. They, they are compelled to find their drug and use it. Linda told me about a family she's gotten to know in upstate New York that really crystallized things for her. I had dinner with the mother of someone who is very active uh, user in Albany. And she worked for the state government, you know, very professional family. And somehow her son, who's now 20-something, got ensnared into uh, the addiction world. And she and her husband are retired now, and they have moved to Florida. And they have said, we've done everything we can for our son. We've had the police arrest him. We've, you know, paid to put him in a treatment center, and there's nothing we can do anymore for him. And, I mean, she's a very nice person, very wonderful person, and she is saying she's basically giving up on her own flesh and blood. For many people, it can take years and numerous attempts to kick an addiction before they're successful in quitting. And in the meantime, they could overdose. They could get HIV or hepatitis or an infection of the heart or bone. They could die. It can be hard not to give up on someone, even family, when it's such an uphill battle. But maybe, when we frame it as quitting or not, we're setting ourselves up with an impossible goal. It feels hopeless, so we give up. Just maybe, the goal might be keeping people alive now, and helping them quit comes later. It works. It saves lives. But it's also a challenge because people's knee-jerk reaction, and I've gotten this, you know, when I talk to constituents and others, they're like, oh, so you're going to put an injection site on Broadway? I'm like, no, that's not that's not how it works. And I explained to them about how um, syringe exchange Nobody knows where, where those facilities are located, yet they're all over the place. And it's the same model. When it was proposed, you know, maybe 20 years ago, people said, you are enabling people to use drugs. And, you know, you have to explain, people will use drugs whether it's the needle is clean, whether they're in a public park, whether in, they're in a McDonald's. It's, it's a necessary act for people who are in the grips of substance use disorder. 
But Linda's hopeful that the data that's been gathered from all around the world, from Vancouver to Sydney, Australia, to a number of cities in Western Europe, will ultimately convince people this is the right thing to do. We should take a lesson from uh, our sister countries around the world where they have provided safe injection facility spaces for their population. People don't die. People get on the road to recovery. And it's one of the tools that we need to deal with this heroin and opioid crisis in the world. Despite all the legal challenges, it's likely that at least some supervised consumption sites will open in the U.S. We'll get to test it at ourselves to see if they do save lives and help drug users on the path to recovery. We'll have a chance to see what impact they have on public order and safety. If there are fewer discarded needles and syringes littering the streets, if we see less public injecting, and if crime stats go up or down. Because ultimately, Even if we can't all agree on how to get there, isn't the goal to save lives and to make our communities better, safer, and healthier? Our next episode takes us back to Vancouver and on a trip overseas. We'll hear how medications can play an important role in helping people recover from addiction and how sometimes those medications can be the very drug they're trying to quit. Today's episode of In Sickness and in Health was produced by Nora Ritchie and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. If you or a loved one needs help, you can reach out anonymously and confidentially to SAMHSA's National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 800-662-4357. SAMHSA stands for Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. You can also find information online at findtreatment.samhsa.gov. That's findtreatment.gov. Dot S-A-M-H-S-A dot G-O-V. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health. <laughs>